This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is day two of a process to repack the fuel in the pipes at the military's Red Hill underground storage tanks. The activity is meant to test the piping system to make sure it's sound enough to begin draining the millions of gallons of fuel in October. The state health department just gave conditional approval to more than 250 repairs at the facility. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden has been tracking the project and joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So repacking at the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility began Monday, and that's the process of adding fuel back into the facility's pipeline to remove excess air. And in this case, the Joint Task Force will use fuel from the Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, and two of the three pipelines will be repacked. The third was deemed unnecessary to defueling. So repacking will equalize the pressure inside of the pipeline system, and it's done to prevent pressure surges during defueling. So during this process, a fuel operator will fill the lines with the new fuel from the upper tank farm, and that'll remove all the air to create more of an even flow for defueling. So Joint Joint Task Force Red Hill Commander Vice Admiral John Wade says the process will be closely monitored. We're going to push it up very slowly and deliberately, and it serves two purposes. One, to remove air from the pipeline to ensure a uniform and smooth flow when we conduct the gravity defueling, but it's also an opportunity to check the integrity of the system. We've conducted multiple tests, quality, but uh, this is just one other opportunity. So it's part of our layered uh, approach to mitigating risk. And then you were uh, able to actually tour the facility on Friday to see you know, what they were doing. Yeah, so before repacking even got started, the Joint Task Force completed 253 mandatory repairs to this World War II era facility, and those are structural and mitigative measures. And during this tour last week, they were showing off some of the repairs to the piping. And one of the repairs included to the site of the pipe that caused one uh, 19,000 gallons of jet fuel to leak back in May 2021. Now that pipe is retrofitted with a dresser coupling that holds it together. And it was this May 2021 spill that ultimately led to water contamination later that year in November. Captain Sean Triggs is the commander of Naval Supply Fleet Logistics at Pearl Harbor. He says that between 2021 and now, the crew working down there has become more narrow in how they operate. Since then, we've done a number of things for operations and improvements that will be in place for defuel to help safely move the fuel this time. First is operation orders. Back in 2021, the operation order was very generic. It did not provide specifics, enough specifics. It just listed valves to operate. Now operation orders are very specific, sequenced, and it's a script for the operation. You do not get off script. It has been validated and verified as the safest operation of the valves, the safest sequencing for the movement of fuel. That's number one. Number two, we've uh, brought in industry leaders to help us with those operation orders and with other programs to help in the safe movement of fuel. They have well over 200 years of uh, industry experience and uh, they have been uh, instrumental in improving the operations and training for our operators. 
And throughout this time, the Joint Task Force has been training service members who have been deployed here for this mission. Some of those tasks include a roving fire patrol, and these members will walk throughout the Red Hill Tunnels, inspecting pipes and acting as additional security. Wade says the Joint Task Force has worked with state and federal agent entities along the way to formulate the plans. So we've had to work with the regulators to build our procedures to defuel, but also build procedures for our response plans if we have a problem. So we've conducted these procedures, we've conducted training at the individual and at the team level, and then we've done tabletop drills in rooms just to go through the procedures, and then walkthroughs, and then actual drills. And when we do the drills, we do them in a what's called a crawl, walk, run approach. So take it slow, capture lessons learned, and then move a little faster the next time so that we can capture those lessons learned for high velocity learning. So we still have more training to do between now and October, and we're gonna to continue to work with the regulators so that we're competent and confident in our ability to execute this mission. And after repacking, the Joint Task Force will move to defueling. That's slated to start in mid-October and run through mid-January of next year. There's about 104 million gallons of fuel currently sitting in 14 of the 20 tanks. And officials estimate that more than 99% of the fuel will be removed, but there will be some residual left. The remaining 103,000 gallons will likely stay in the facility. Wade says it'll be gravity defueling, so it's not entirely dependent on electricity to get it done. So one of the benefits of conducting gravity defueling is that we're not fully dependent on electricity if there is a problem and we have an electrical outage while we're conducting the evolution. While many of the valves do require uh, electrical power, some are hydraulically generated and others are manual, and we'll have personnel at all the valves. So uh, we'll be able to communicate and be able to stop the evolution if we have a problem. But one of the things that we're doing to mitigate risk in our multidimensional approach is to ensure that not only the equipment that we'll be using for defueling is ready and to standard, but also all the support systems. The most important are electrical and also water. And water is important for fire su suppression throughout the facility. They've installed special fire extinguishers that the roving patrol have also been trained to use. Yeah, and I, I know that uh, they were pulling back on the uh, fire suppression system with the Forever Chemicals, the AFFF, mm -hmm. and they've got some other different system that they're trying to um, use. Yeah, so last year we had a AFFF spill, and they've done a few different mitigating processes, including installing new cameras to kind of make sure and monitor and have better eyes and capabilities within the tunnels. Yeah, because you really just want to make sure that this um, repacking process goes well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if they do find any leaks or, or weak spots, that they correct those before they actually start that gravity-fed um, defueling. Because mm -hmm. that's just around the corner. <laughs> but thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you, Catherine. We have been talking to HPR's Sabrina Bowden. You can find her stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. For our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beats coverage of the Maui wildfires looks at the effect on farmers and ranchers. Reporter Thomas Heaton joins us today. Hi, Thomas. Hi, Catherine. 
So you were talking to a number of folks there uh, on Maui. What's the snapshot? Yes, so um, in the days and now weeks since August 8, uh, farmers and ranchers were really part of the immediate relief efforts for um, providing some form of relief to um, those who were displaced and affected by the August 8 wildfires that, um, of course, raised the uh, raised Lahaina and killed at least 115 people. Um, but in the fallout from the fires, those farmers and ranchers have actually been affected. Um, and they're facing a bit of an uncertain future as they both deal with the immediate effects of the winds that ripped through Maui and also the fires that burnt through um, thousands of acres of pasture and damaged thousands of feet of water lines and thousands of feet of fencing, um, essentially raising some concerns about the future viability of agriculture on Maui and what relief will need to be given to the farmers and ranchers themselves. Yeah, because, you know, we saw how the winds, uh, you know, did a number on crops, uh, you know, mm. and, and the fires then, you know, like you said, destroyed the uh, irrigation systems or threatened some of them. And so, yeah, lots of repairs need to be made. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not just the fires, as you say, it's the wind. So I spoke to Noel Hashimoto of Hashimoto's Persimmon and Cherimoya. Uh, he lost up to about 70% of his persimmon harvest, which was supposed to, you know, that was fruit that was supposed to be picked in about four weeks' time. So he, he's lost a massive part of his harvest. But also, looking down the line, with the loss of Lahaina, a lot of Maui's farmers and ranchers have lost a key market. So there are some real questions there about what can be done to help them find new markets as Lahaina... Um, rebuilds and recuperates and recovers from the disastrous events of August 8 and August 9. Yeah, and your story has a picture of the Hashimoto uh, farm, all those trees that were planted by uh, Noel Hashimoto's father and grandfather. Oh, just heartbreaking. Mm, the winds were so strong that, you know, tore trees apart, not only knocking leaves off, but downing fruit and also tearing trees limb from limb um, and this is something that also farmers protea farmers the you know the the flower from africa beautiful flower that is often supplied to hotels around lahaina they had suffered immense loss as well um, and those trees are something they're a long-term investment you have to plant those trees and wait for six years before they flower so there are definitely some nurseries hurting um, and the winds also affected ranchers as well. Uh, I spoke to one rancher who had a 45,000-gallon water tank tip over in the winds. It literally got under it and lifted it. Um, and that was, you know, during the time that these ranchers were actually helping to fight the fires themselves in cooler. So, um, yeah, they're, they're facing a bit of an uncertain future, but agricultural nonprofits and agencies on the state, county, and federal level are trying to assess the damage at the moment um, and try and uh, get some relief to those farmers and ranchers. Yeah, your story talks about how the initial estimates are what, um, some 6,000 acres of uh, agricultural land that's been affected? Yes, so it sits at about 6,350 acres of agricultural land. The majority of that is uh, pasture land and rangeland, which is used by ranchers. 
Um, it appears that the lion's share of that pasture is uh, Haleakala Ranch, but also uh, Diamond Bay Ranch has been affected as well. Um, and they, the, the ranching community is really rallying around those ranches and all those affected, not only donating beef to uh, direct to, to directly benefit those who are displaced to help feed people who are displaced in the Lahaina fire, um, but they're also rallying to send feed to help supplement the loss of grass so that the cattle can still eat and these farmers can hopefully it can tide over these farmers as they recover. And we just have to hope for rain, I guess, at some point up there, um, uh, up in Kula. Yes, it's a difficult situation because, of course, they want rain but not too much. Um, and they also have to deal with access deer, which uh, has been a long bugbear of ranches in, um, in Maui uh, as those deer eat the food that's in, eat the grass that's intended for the cattle. So it's looking rather uncertain for those ranches. But um, it seems that everyone, as always, is gathering together and um, is in solidarity trying to recover from, you know, the events of earlier this month. Yeah, just trying to cope. All right, well, hopefully we'll get, we'll have some better numbers on how many ranchers and, and farmers affected. But thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the University of Hawaii Foundation, supporting the Maui community, all the UH students, faculty, and staff affected by the Maui fires. Donations accepted at uhfoundation.org slash help Maui. There's a major effort to fully decriminalize sex work in the United States, but many former sex workers are pushing back. This idea that it's her body, her choice, you know, she has power and autonomy in the sex trade is a, is a fallacy. Advocates have differing opinions, but all agree that the status quo isn't working. Should the law be changed and how? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Support for HPR comes from Four Seasons Resort Hualalai's 25th Run for Hope, featuring the Taste of Hawaii event, music by Kimie Minor, 5 and 10K runs, and more, September 8th and 9th. Registration by searching active.com. The grand old party has struggled nationally and locally. Next month, Hawaii Republicans are slated to take a vote for a new party leader. It will be the second election this year after Lynn Finnegan stepped down as chair after boosting GOP numbers following the election in both the House and the Senate. State Representative Lauren Masumoto, the minority leader for the House, talked with us about a series of meetings across Oahu that kicks off this Thursday. It's being billed as listening sessions and is open to all, regardless of party affiliation. This is different than a town hall. Normally in a town hall, you know, somebody from the audience asks a question. The person in charge, the department head or the politician at the front gives a one to two minute answer, which 
usually is pretty unsatisfactory for a complex issue and it doesn't really solve anything. And so the listening tour is more where we're there asking the questions and getting all of the feedback in order to prepare all of our bills for the next legislative session. And this tour, I mean, so it's not just one and done. I mean, we've got a series of meetings uh, over several Thursdays, and you're going around the island. Yeah, so we are going to go to four locations. So our first one is going to be on Thursday, August 31st. We're on the Windward side at Castle High School. And then we're going to go over to Mililani, and that's at Mililani High School. And then we're going to Hawaii Kai, and then over into Kapolei. So we'll be doing four locations on Oahu. We are looking to do the neighbor islands. That was always the plan. But now with Maui, we are kind of seeing what is the right way to approach and how to listen to the neighbor islands, whether we go there in person, whether it's something we do in Zoom, but looking to do the entire state. So you really want to engage the community with these sessions. You know, so much has happened on the national scene with the GOP. You know, the other night I just happened to watch the the debates, the presidential debates. So this is really a critical time for the GOP. Yeah. So I'm going to be honest, I didn't have the time to watch the debates. We've just been so focused on helping everybody in Maui and to do everything we can there. I'll definitely go and look back. We live in an age where you can watch everything back over and over again. But what's so exciting is, I've said this many times, but I've been in office for over 10 years now, and this is the most cohesive Republican House caucus that I have ever been a part of. And so that's something that's been really encouraging me. You know, we're all really different. Uh, We have different styles, we have different approaches, but we've all come together to work for the betterment of our state and recognizing that sometimes our different styles are important, right? And so this is a time where we are actually going out together as a unit, you know, in unity as a whole caucus to listen to the people in Hawaii, to go out into their communities in order to hear what are the most important issues for our state, what are the most important issues for the communities that we're in, in order to really build the best legislation possible. Well, you do represent a different cross-section of the Republican community out there. Absolutely. And I think it's important to have all the voices be heard. And so at this listening tour, we don't just want Republicans to come out. I think that's an important message to get across. We want everybody to come out because the legislation we put in aren't for Republicans. It's for the entire state. And so for these listening tours, we want as many people to come out as possible It doesn't matter your political background or even if you have a political party that you're with. It's our caucus coming out and wanting to genuinely listen to everybody. You are definitely casting a wide net. Yes, because, I mean, I think ultimately that's what we're trying to do is create the best possible legislation that will better the entire state and not just one group of people or the other, but listening to all the voices and coming together and really producing that legislation that, of course, not everybody is going to agree, but at least we can hear all of the voices from the get-go before we head into the 2024 legislative session. Well, we have heard, you know, many people lament that we don't have a stronger two-party system, and the Republican Party has had challenges. You did make gains in the House in getting the numbers back up again. Yeah, we, we made a lot of gains in 2022, but I think if you bring up a good point, and so often people are just looking at, you know, their own representative or who they've known for a long time, but I think what's 
so important is on that macro picture of balance. We are the most unbalanced state in the nation. You know, out of the 51 in the House, we only have six Republicans. And that's, again, a high number from what we've had before. And in the Senate, with 25 members, there are only two Republicans. And I've always said it doesn't matter what side you're on. If one side has too much power for too long, a lot of times ideas don't go challenged. There's not conversation to be had, and we're not producing the best legislation because things just fly through the legislature so often. And so I think it's really important to have a balanced legislature. And I think if you talk to most people who are involved in politics, they would agree. It's not good to only have one thought or one side. It's good to have a diversity of ideas and thoughts so you can produce the best possible bills coming out. And during your listening tour, you know, if you're inviting everybody, I'm sure you're you're going to have to address, you know, kind of the state of the party here. Um, you know, it's in flux, right? We've, we've had the leader of the GOP step back. You folks have had a interim. I think Representative Diamond Garcia was acting. Um, you had an election, but things are still in flux and you'll have another election in September. Yeah. And so I think what's so important to focus on is that in our party, Many of the people have so much passion and they agree on a lot of the issues. They might not always agree on on the how, but the influx is not new and it's not unique to just the Republican Party. It happens in the Democrat Party and actually happens across the country. Um, And I really focus on what, you know, as in my job as the minority leader, what our legislators are doing in the Republican caucus. And this year we have been so strong. We've started so many different things. We have a, a radio um, we have a radio show that we do every Monday, Wednesday, Friday on AM 690 and FM 94.3 called Capital Convos um, from 5 to 6. And so every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, each of uh, the legislators in the Republican caucus, we have a day that we do and we bring in people from the community, from different departments, and are really sharing what's happening at the Capitol as well as Um, in our communities. And the other thing that we've been doing this year is the Republican Report, where every week during session we are sending out um, an email blast to whoever would like to sign up on kind of those controversial bills going through the legislative session, just to keep people aware on what's happening and so that they can provide testimony. And also we give them information on how to provide that testimony. So often people don't get involved because they don't know how. And so we're working to change that because I think it's a really small percentage of people in our state actually get involved. And that's what needs to change. We need to hear all the voices. And that's the reason we're really doing the the listening tour is because I think people have become disenfranchised and they don't trust their government. Um, I heard the number once that we have 16% approval rating of our legislature as a whole, which is a really, really horrible number. And so we've lost that trust. And so instead of, you know, for years we've been trying to get people to come to testify at the Capitol and realize that's not really happening anymore. And so that's why, as a Republican caucus, we are going out into all of the communities to cre- to hear from people and to truly listen. Because I think that's what we've heard all, a lot, saying my voice isn't being heard. Nobody is listening to me. And so that's why we're trying to flip that script on that traditional town hall and do this listening tour. And then how do you navigate through the Trump factor, you know, given that the former president, you know, has been indicted more than once and is still running 
again for president. That's really divided our community. I don't know if it's divided the community as much in Hawaii. It's definitely something that they talk about a lot on the national scale. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of times with media, I feel like things have been overblown. I think media ethics, everything seems to be for a story. Um, I actually did a Capital Combos on media and media's role in politics on that radio show that we did. And so it's really interesting seeing what's coming out of it. And I think some of it has caused people to trust the media and the government even less. And so I've really been focused on trying to help what's happening locally. You know, there is that national scene, but locally here in Hawaii, I feel like we run our politics a little bit different. And if we're trying to bring in that national media narrative, it's just not helpful. And so, again, that's why our caucus has been really focused on what we can do for the people of Hawaii. Is there anything you want to say just about the civility, though, in some of the conversations that we've been having? Because there are some lawmakers who some voters may think, well, they crossed the line with their statements just within this last year. Yeah, so that's actually why I was talking about that national narrative. I think in the last few years that has bled into our state. When I first started in office, you know, you, we would talk about a policy, you would talk about a policy issue. Now with social media, everything has spilled over into uh, people's feeds. And instead of just talking about policy, people have been talking about specific legislators or, you know, calling people out by name. And I've actually said to many members of our legislature, and I actually talk with speaker about this, of we need to be the model of what civil discourse looks like. It's important to have differences. It's important to have different opinions, but that we need to do that respectfully. And so that's something that as the minority leader, I've been really pushing for in that legislature to have that decorum and to have that respect. And so it's something that I hope we see in 2024, um, because 2023 was a very interesting session. And especially this next session coming up when we're going to be talking about really, really emotional issues with things coming up from Maui that that civil discourse is now more than ever extremely important. Well, Representative, uh, we thank you for your time, and we hope that, that everything goes well and that everyone is respectful. Yes, and we're actually really excited. The only thing I didn't mention, we're also trying to support some small businesses. So at every single uh, one of our tours, there will be food trucks. So you can okay. pick up your food, come into the cafeteria, and have that conversation. We we'll also have... Um, some local entertainers that will be there as well. And so really it is a, a family-friendly night. We want everybody to come out, and we do want to have those conversations. And they can be difficult conversations, but you're right, conversations with respect. But we're looking forward to having seen everybody coming out over the next few weeks. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. That was Republican State Representative Lauren Masumoto talking about the Hawaii Republican Listening Tour that launches this Friday at Campbell High School. Look for a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. for supporting our ohana on Maui who have been impacted by the recent fires. Thanks to you, Hawaii Public Radio raised over $200,000 for Maui. 100% of these donations will go to Hawaii Community Foundation's Maui Strong Fund. Your contributions will help over 50 nonprofits on the ground provide the critical care that Maui's residents need 
right now. Mahalo for your generosity and solidarity. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Kinoshita and her partner Nicholas Logue are the founders of the Hawaii Conservatory of the Performing Arts out of Wimmerd Community College. This is a free one-year certificate program certified by East 15, a top-ranked acting conservatory in the United Kingdom. The program's focus is to train students to become working professionals. Both Kinoshita and Logue worked at East 15 before returning to Hawaii and working to establish the conservatory. Kinoshita and the conversation Stephanie Hahn were joined by student Tamalin Surivata in our studios. Uh, Surivata recalled when she learned that she would be heading to London this fall. I got an email from the head of the BA up in East 15 who um, actually taught a class with us, um, Phil, um, and he offered me a spot to be at East 15. Wow. Yeah. What an opportunity. Yeah. So it was when she told me that I almost passed out. Yeah. Can I just brag for a second? <laughs> she she didn't audition. She was offered a place on a program that's their Cadillac program. So 3,300 other people auditioned to be on that program and she was just offered it. What a great opportunity. I mean, you were wonderful on stage. So I I totally believe you were offered the space. But also, (laughs) I have to really hand it to you, Tari, because you were the one who really coordinated this and is bringing this opportunity to young people here. This is great. It's all the students. It's all the students. It is all the students. It is. It is. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why we have the conservatory, right? We have these amazing students. How is your family feeling about your? passion to pursue acting as a career. Oh, um, (laughs) looking at this career, it doesn't seem practical to a lot of other people. And that was something that I had to work with with my family, but they have been very supportive from the get-go, which I, I really love. As an artist, I really didn't think there was anything else out there for me besides, you know, just staying in Hawaii. And I never thought that I could leave. And then when I went into this program with Tari and Nick, it just really opened a lot of doors for me. And the support that they have has just been amazing. I'm asking in particular about your personal journey. You know, obviously you trained as a performer, but to found a conservatory is a pretty big deal. (laughs) And it suggests a kind of vision. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. My mother was manic depressive. She committed suicide. And I used to try to perform stories for her, write poems, perform poems for her. I was on a scholarship to a schmancy school. Um, They wanted me, so they they let me study there. But then when I was um, a junior, they kicked me out, so I was homeless for a bit. I remember a director had seen me at a, a speech contest, like, you know, speech and debate, like one of those things, mm-hmm. and he uh, asked me to do a show. And I showed up to the show every night because uh, they had a free manapua for me to eat on stage, a vegetarian manapua. Mm-hmm. 
but the cast hated me. They hated me. Of course they hated me, because I didn't know what professionalism was. I didn't know what the standards were. The director had already followed this, the West End Broadway model and just disappeared. So the director had already left, and you know I was showing up at 8 p.m. for the 8 p.m. show. But nobody told me. Nobody told me, hey, you know, Tari, this is what to do. Um, this is the behavior we expect. I had a mentor named Dr. Dennis Carroll who founded Kumakua Theater. He told me. <laughs> he told me. He was unafraid. Um, I remember once I was like crying in the hallway of uh, school and he came out. He's like, nobody acts like that in here. <laughs> nobody does that. And I never did it again. Uh, and I was quite damaged, um, but he... You know, he never gave up on me. He didn't, like, relegate me to a specific, like, role. Like, oh, well, that's the screwed up kid, right? I think it's really important that teachers never do that, right? Just because, you know, somebody was one way in one class or one way one semester doesn't mean they're not going to learn and grow, and you ha can't give up on them. Mm -hmm. You cannot give up on them. So I started acting. I, I was blacklisted for a couple of years. <laughs> um, then I figured it out. I got my, my act together. If it was a Shakespeare play, I would get cast. If it wasn't a Shakespeare play, I remember the director would always say, you know, you you have the best audition or whatever, but we don't have a role that fits you. I remember once, um, yeah, yeah, and this, right? And you would think, right, in Hawaii, right, this isn't an issue. Mm. But it, it it absolutely was, especially being Hapa, right, like mixed. Like, I remember once I had a friend that was dropping out of his show, so she, the director was like, find a replacement. So she brings me in, she's like, Tari's amazing, she's like the best actress I know. And he took one look at me and yelled at me for 20 minutes in front of a cast of like 50 that I was too Japanese looking. Oh, wow. And then so finally, I had a friend that was like, uh, you should try directing, right? I mean, directing, 80% of it is understanding acting, understanding the beats, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, so I started directing and I loved directing. And I was of course drawn to certain stories and types of stories that were that would have an effect on people that would hopefully make the world a better place that were more educational hopefully entertaining and educational mm -hmm. my partner and i were well we were in new york for like a, a year and a half it's our first year of marriage bad bad year first year is not <laughs> ideal <laughs> um, but you know i you know I, I had a lot of great experiences there and then um, we got offered the jobs in england we moved to england and i, I did love it because i was learning something new every day we were there and we got to actually see, like it was quite a revelation for me because I came from the university system. Oh, wow, like they just study their metier, their vocation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Craft um, Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's, that's amazing. Now, I do think it's cultural, ultimately, in the sense that in England, the focus is on how you're gonna serve society. How are you going to serve society? This is your job. This is how you're going to serve society. So you have to be good at it. Mm. Whereas, you know, in the in the states, there's sort of this um, notion of, well, there was, <laughs> of a well-rounded, more balanced individual. Mm. Um, so it's more, it's almost more democratic, right? So you're going to learn a little bit about all these things so you can vote. So sort of the, does that make sense? The focus is on the individual. Yeah. So you learn all these things as opposed to just the job you do. I also think that it has to do with how people respect the arts mm -hmm. and looking at acting as a job. It is a vocation. You can get 100%. better at yeah. it. 100%. You can have a skill level. You, if This is a skill. 100%. Absolutely. Yes. I agree with that. Because, yeah, that's a, that's another thing, right, is like is the, the 
the time you you do need to put into it. Like I said, oh, I don't believe in talent, but you need time. Mm-hmm. You need that time to put into it, right? Um, and 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 that's yeah. Thank you. And that's another really important difference is I do feel like in places that are in America, there there is this more of a sense of you know, the excellence and standards and like, we're gonna work really hard and we can achieve these things. Whereas sort of here, it's like just what, what is the market? What's popular? What's gonna sell? Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> and Tari, any word that you wanna say to future students? We really care. We yes. really care. Yeah. You will uh, be held to the highest standards oh, and yeah. you'll, learn, you'll learn so much uh, that will allow you to do this as a career you know nick fundraise so you you yes, look yeah right. you lose nothing you literally lose nothing from trying it yeah i mean our students are the best the support that they have as a program there and as mentors um and as people who just love the arts is just insane like they treat us they treat us like family there's no other way that i can put it it's so sad to me like the the students that i've seen in the past that wanted to go on with it and then you know they found themselves in some horrible place in the continent freezing in debt you know that's that's another reason why why we have this program mm-hmm. for for kids that you know just to make it make it's it more, more accessible e- yeah equitable yeah. and accessible to everybody thank you so thank you so much thank you for coming thank you that was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking with Tari uh, Kinoshita, co-founder of the Hawaii Conservatory uh, of the P- Performing Arts at Windward Community College. Kinoshita credits uh, acting with changing her life and has dedicated herself to providing students with opportunities to learn, train, and succeed in their chosen craft. And WCC student uh, Tomalin Sirivata is headed to London's East 15 Acting School this fall. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and communities affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. There's not much worse for food packing plants than something like a salmonella outbreak. The thing is, it can take days to get a test back, and money is on the line, so speed is everything. I just inject my sample and then wait a couple of minutes, and then I can read very clear here. I'm Kai Rizdal. It is better to know when health and profits are on the line. We'll tell you more next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, offering rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby featuring a backdrop of Hawaii's flora by local artist Kamea Hadar. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com. Gone in resident Cheryl Brost was named fittest woman on earth earlier this month when she won the women's 50 to 54 division of the 2023 CrossFit Games. It's the 10th time she's competed in the Games. After winning in 2016 and 17, 
Her journey back to the podium has been long. She's battled injuries along the way, finishing seventh in 2019 and fourth last year. The conversations Russell Subiano talked with Bross this morning about the hard-earned victory and whether winning ever gets old. How did it feel to be back on the podium? Uh, it felt amazing to stand back on top of the podium this year, and I've had lots of opportunities to go to the games. been blessed that way. I really enjoyed each and every experience in its own right. I've had a few surgeries since 2017, since I last stood on top of the podium. You know, maybe that played a role, you know, in the last previous two trips to the games. You know, not quite making the podium last year was very close. I was literally 10 points out of a tie for second. So, yeah, just it felt amazing and very rewarding to be able to overcome injuries I've had and still know that I can compete at that very top level. And the bonus for me, especially this year, was my best friend who I've met through CrossFit five years ago stood right next to me. She was came in second, Nicole Abbott. That makes the uh, yeah. the no, it was, better, yeah. It was like a picture perfect, like couldn't write a better script. I really enjoy all the competitors in our age division. Nicole and I are remote training partners. Been, it's just been amazing. Like she lives in South Carolina, I live in Hawaii, but it feels like we've known each other for our whole lives, but it's always been <laughs> a little over five years. So I was super happy for her to stand on top of the podium her first time so yeah super stoked for her and she's had some big surgeries that she's overcome as well with her shoulders i think one of my favorite things about crossfit is the friends that you make like the lifelong friends that you make yeah and right yeah and being in the workout and being able to turn to your friend and Mm -hmm. you know and just encourage them or hearing them encourage you exactly i had a handful of friends like that we were always the last person to finish in the wad but you know, it was fun. It made it fun. And that, that was more important than, than anything else, I think. And literally, I could with her at the games this year because she qualified coming into the game fifth. I qualified coming into the game sitting in third. So how they do the lane assignment, third and fifth, are our lanes are right next to each other. Oh, perfect. And so each day they would reset the lane assignment based on the previous day's performances. And we were like one and two or one and three. So we would be right by each other, side by side, every event through the whole games. I can imagine that just pushed and motivated you both even more. Was there anything else that you credit for your success this year? Did you do anything different in your training program? You know, that's, that's a good question. Our son got married literally the weekend before the games so i knew that was coming up and you know i almost did not compete this year just because i didn't want to be a a distraction from the family and his wedding and is our first child getting married and my coaches knew i was contemplating i went through all the qualifiers of course and just left my options open and then nicole she had to go qualify (laughs) And so I could not not go. <laughs> right, right. And it worked out well. I mean, the it actually was really ideal in terms of the lead up. You know, it's kind of you're deloading that week. And we had a great time. The wedding was beautiful. And so I think we just kind of carried that swell of, 
a high, emotional high, you know, heading into the game. And back up a step before, though, is once I made the decision I was going to go for the game, I had a chat, both Nicole and I had a chat with our coach, we have the same coach, about what training was going to look like leading up to the games. We had, I think, about our longest time period we've ever had between qualifiers and the actual games competition. We had over two months to train and get ready for the games. And so we sat down with coach and, you know, basically kind of gave her our goals and how we wanted training to look this summer. We wanted to be prepared, but we didn't want to come into the games injured or we didn't want to come into the games overtrained. We wanted to be feel fresh and ready to take on whatever's asked of us. And I thought coach did an amazing job balancing that for us. And the training was tons of fun. I could get in the gym and mostly get it done between two to three hours on the longer days, but it still gave me plenty of time to, to do other fun stuff. It sounds like it was like a perfect combination of, of like all this positive energy, yeah. you know, from, from like your son's wedding and, and your mm-hmm. friendship and, and good training. And I know obviously training for the workouts in the games is a critical part of being successful in the competition. But I imagine there's also kind of the small details on the periphery that also contribute to the difference between first place and the rest of the pack. What are what are some of the small things that as a champion you have to pay attention to? Geez, yeah. I would say, you know, my experience in the sport all these years paid off. I think being able to handle nerves and anxiety heading into an event. Like the finale, for example, I, I don't know if you realize, but I was heading into the finale. I was sitting in third place, but I was literally only 10 or 20 points out of first. But I knew going into that event, I just needed to win it, you know, to take care of my own destiny. And fortunately for me, it was, it was a good workout for me. And it was super fun. That was probably one of my fav- most favorite events of the games. I mean, there was a couple others I really liked, but that was has to top it off as being the most favorite event. 20 bar muscle-ups for time right into 30 alternating dumbbell squat snatches. It was a quick one and super fun. just feels like you're a kid on the playground, you know, right. playing on the, on the monkey bars. And You posted on social media not long ago that sleep is a critical component of your overall oh, yeah. physical and mental health. How much should athletes be paying attention to the sleep that they get? How does that contribute to their success? Oh, my gosh. There's so much recovery that's happening during sleep. And, you know, when you're hitting that deep sleep as as well. I was starting to kind of go through a cycle. I think a lot of people at our age experience where, you know, you start waking up in the middle of the night. And then, you know, rather than being able to turn over and go right back to sleep, you're just laying there staring at the ceiling or you know, trying to get your mind to turn off or I started to have those happening. Like I would say this spring and I'd lay there for an hour or more wide awake. So actually this company, Third Z reached out to me and they said that they had a a sleep supplement that a lot of CrossFit athletes have been really enjoying. And I hadn't heard of it before. And they offered to send me a sample and that stuff is amazing. Like the first night, it worked for me. I take it like an hour before I go to bed. It's the L-theanine, GABA, magnesium, 
and oh geez there's some collagen protein in there as well it helps you go to sleep but it also i found it helps me if i do wake up to go to the bathroom or whatever i'm able to go back to sleep much 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 sooner like almost within minutes so i was tracking my sleep and my sleep numbers went up from i would say averaging seven hours a night to nine and a half hours a night so I have numerous nights where I was getting 10 hours sleep heading into the games. Well, maybe not the week of the wedding, but <laughs> but all that, I think, paid off in the end. I felt my body felt refreshed and restored and ready to take on the next day's training or whatever I had on the schedule. I think a lot of times the recovery part of training is overlooked by mm-hmm. the general public. But when it comes to the rest and recovery I feel like that should get a lot more or as equal attention. That's super critical, especially as we age. Our bodies get so tight and fascia gets just matted down. And in addition to my weekly massages with my body worker and chiropractic work as well, it's almost a necessity to stay on top of the game, you know, in your sport. You got to commit time to those things. This is my last question for you, Cheryl. Does winning the games, does it ever get old? (laughs) No. Heck no. It's super fun when you prepare, spend so much time working to prepare for something and for it to all go, you know, as you hoped or planned and to come out on top. It's winning's always fun. It's not my focus, but it certainly is super fun when it happens. Well, thanks so much for your time, Cheryl. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Russell. Well, that was 2023 CrossFit Games champion Cheryl Bross talking with HPR's Russell Sibiono. She says she hopes to continue to compete in the Games in the future, but there may be changes coming to the competition, so she'll have to wait and see how they affect her. That wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow, we hear about the debris from the Lahaina wildfires washing up on other shores. Got some feedback for us? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation episodes wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.